Well, good afternoon. It's a great joy and privilege for us to be able to have this wonderful opportunity to gather together today for one simple yet profound reason, and that's to worship our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, if you've not already done so, please join me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, our sermon text is going to be verses 9 through 14, but I want to read beginning in verse 3 to capture some of the content of Paul's prayer uh, to this young church, this church that he had not yet seen face to face. Colossians chapter 1, I'll begin in verse 3 and read all the way through verse 14. Worship, worship as we read God's word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for this great privilege that has been granted to us today according to your kindness and according to the great kind intention of your will. We pray that you would fill us with the fullness of God, that you would strengthen our inner man, that you would help us to know the height, love, or excuse me, the height and the depth of the love that you have for us that we have in Christ. God, we pray that you Uh, would encourage us through your word today and help us, Lord. Help us to use um, these few verses and help us, Lord, to be able to know uh, in very practical ways how we can care for one another and encourage one another. We ask these things in Christ Jesus. Amen. So today's sermon title uh, from Colossians 1 is Unceasing Cry for a Worthy Walk with God. And it seems that one of the implicit things that Paul is doing uh, in this very short, very brief letter is he's giving this young church 
uh, some practical instructions, instructions that we would be wise to take heed to ourselves, and telling them there's no shortcut. If you desire to be a healthy church, if you want to be a church that says uh, you're trying to very closely follow the teachings of Christ, there is no shortcut to this that would exclude intercessory praying. Not just an occasional prayer, but to truly embody what it means, what it looks like to be a praying people. I mean, how often do we need to see something in the Bible for us to be fully convinced that it's true? For us to be fully convinced that this is of great significance for Christian living. If you recall, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples uh, were privileged in ways to be able to sit in on the praying of Jesus, which prompted their request, Lord, teach us to pray. They knew that when the Father went, or when Jesus went away to a secluded place, that he was going to meet with the Father, our Father, to beseech his will. And there's no doubt the Apostle Paul witnessed this very same uh, pattern and model that we observe from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it shouldn't be any surprise to us at all, right? It shouldn't be any surprise to us at all that we see sprinkled throughout the writings of Paul's letters that he is both instructing in prayer as well as demonstrating what praying actually looks like. What do you think it must have done in them to receive this letter from the Apostle Paul? The great missionary being used by God. The religious zealot who was on his way to exterminate Christ and Christianity. Yet God in his kindness met him on that road and changed his heart. What do you think it would have done in this young congregation to receive this very tender and compassionate and pointed letter to them. In a lot of ways, it probably would do the same thing as it does in us when we hear somebody lifting our name before the throne room of God. What happens when you hear somebody praying your name to God? Does it not move your spirit? Does it not give you great encouragement? But see, the instruction that Paul gives is not just mere instruction alone. It's actually demonstration. It's less of do this and more along the lines of this is what real praying looks like. For the past eight years, uh, I've been a barista at Starbucks, and I'm thankful to the Lord for that time. I'd hope I'd last six months, and here we are, eight and a half months or eight and a half years later, and I'm still there. So over the course of that time, I've seen well over or worked with well over a hundred what we would call partners. And I've had the opportunity to train some of those partners. And when we sit down and I train with them, there are a series of questions that I ask them. I don't immediately put them on an espresso bar and say, here, this is what I want you to make. I want you to make a double tall, non-fat, two equal, no foam latte. Can you do that? No, we don't begin there. That'd be far too overwhelming for them. What we do is we just start out with just basic instructions. I just go through basic standards with Starbucks. Then, after going through those basic standards, I just start asking them questions. Now, how long is unopened coffee good for? What's the shelf life? 32 weeks. Good, that's a correct answer. If we open up that bag, how long are unground beans good for? Seven-day shelf life. Correct, you have, a, you have the right answer. So, if you grind these beans, how long of a shelf life uh, 
is the ground coffee good for? 24 hours. Good, that's the correct answer. So, when you go to the grocery store and you buy something that's already been ground, it's not exactly fresh coffee, okay? So that, there's your coffee lesson for this morning. And so, and I know Corey Henry's probably the only guy in this room that's paying attention to anything I'm saying right now. And so after going through these instructions, the follow-up to that is I start allowing them to practice. Why don't you demonstrate a little bit? Or let me back up and say before I get them to demonstrate, I demonstrate for them. This is how we cue the shot. This is how we steam the milk. This is the amount that we pour. This is the right amount of syrups or sauces that we put. This is the recipe for the drink. I show them how it's done. And then I'll allow them to practice. And after allowing them to practice, I'll give what I hope is some helpful feedback and instruction. And so I'm just using this example, hopefully in a way to communicate and illustrate for us just the importance that instruction is not enough. There has to be a demonstration. And, in when, and within that demonstration, it's good for us to receive helpful feedback so that our praying is more in keeping with the pattern of Christ and with the demonstration that Paul is giving this young church. And I believe today's sermon text is going to help the person who is asking some of these questions when seeking. What does praying for somebody, what does gospel care for somebody really look like? Perhaps one of these questions you've asked before, or maybe you're asking that right now. Have you ever asked, what does caring for somebody look like? Have you ever sat across the table from someone who is pouring out their heart to you and you wrestled with God with, what do I say to them? How do I help them? How do I point them to Christ? How do I encourage them? Have you ever become anxious when somebody has simply just said, hey, is it okay if you and I meet up? There's some things that have been uh, stirring in my heart and I just want to talk about that. Has that ever made you or caused you to become anxious? Now, I think if I would have asked for a show of hands, including myself, all of us would probably raise our hand. Who is sufficient for such things? Oftentimes, I've told April that I think if people could see the inner wrestling in my heart and in my mind and my soul when I'm sitting across the table from them talking, it might, you know, it might give them some, a, a little bit of concern. Because it's real wrestling with God. Like, what? I want to be of help. I want to be of right encouragement. But what if they actually do the very things that I'm suggesting for them to do? Who is sufficient for such things? And I'm sure a lot of us have been there before where we've, we feel like we're not real certain how or what help might look like. Verses 9 through 14. This is what it looks like. This is a guide. This is a great example for us. Paul is demonstrating that churches who are moving forward toward and in biblical health, they have at least these three components in intercession. They are requesting, they are providing an encouraging word, and they are responding. The request comes by way of asking God for something. The encouragement comes by way of verse 11. May you be strengthened, encouraging people in obedience to Christ. And then just simply the response of giving thanks to God. 
giving thanks to God for these opportunities to point one another to Christ. So the prayer that we see in verses 9 through 14 is a prayer for a Christian in full bloom. We want to be a Christian in full bloom? Then verses 9 through 14, that's one way we ought to pray. It's not the only way, but that's a way that we ought to pray for one another. Because it shows that at the apex of each of these phrases are what a Christian that both knows his need for Christ and is simultaneously experiencing Christ in full measure looks like. And I just want to say I'd love to import everything that Pastor Jim preached last week uh, and the week following from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, being filled up with the fullness of God, being strengthened in our inner man that we may know the love of Christ. Around grace, often, this question is posed. What would it look like for us to be satisfied with the sufficiency of Christ? Or we sometimes phrase it in a different way. When will Jesus Christ be enough for you? When will Christ be enough for you? These verses here, that's an answer to that. This is what it looks like when Christ is enough for us. And so, as we consider this prayer a bit more closely, it might be helpful, too, to remind ourselves Paul's current context. You know where he's writing this letter from? Prison. Paul's in prison. What did he do? He preached Christ. They told him not to do it. He did it anyway. He suffered the consequences as a result of that. Do we get any sense whatsoever that Paul is a curmudgeon Christian? Do we get any sense of bitterness whatsoever? Is he somehow doubting God's will and God's providence? I thought obedience to you meant something else. No. There is real joy. The only, the only kind of joy that can be given to God, given by God to us. He is elated with what God is doing for the sake of his name all around the world. He is encouraged by how the gospel is rapidly spreading. He notes that it's increasing, it's growing, not only in you, but all around the world. In such a way that he's, it's causing him to praise God, to give thanks to God often, to pray unceasingly for a people that Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 says, for I want you to know the struggle I have for you and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that your hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love to reach full assurance of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This burden from God to a people he has never seen. He has never seen them. So that's why we can pray with impassioned hearts for that people group that I can't even recall their name right now from Ethiopia that Pastor Jordan prayed for this morning. We can pray for a people. We can pray for churches. We don't have to see their face. We don't necessarily have to know their name. But we can ask God for a similar burden for them for the progress of the gospel. Paul was not jealous. Paul was not sitting back there in, this, in, in his cell saying, man, why won't God break me out of here so that I can get back to doing these things. He understood. He understood 
God's place of ministry for him in that moment. And he grew where he was being planted. And he was happy to encourage this church. What's more encouraging for us in the midst of trials than to receive the comfort of Christ from from someone who has himself received the very comfort of Christ? Doesn't that help get underneath you? Help put life in you? Or as some would phrase it, help put wind in your sails? He has real joy for them. And it ought to be said too, recently struck by this, verse 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 7, Epaphras, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. It's enough to be known for that. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. How was it that Paul knew that this young church was contingent with syncretism? That's a blending in of some biblical truth with a lot of error. This blending, this melting pot together. How was it that Paul knew that there was erroneous teaching that was going on in this church that was teaching that Jesus is less than God but greater than man? How did Paul know that? Epaphras, one responsible for getting the gospel to this young church, their pastor, went to him and said, this is what's happening. And sometime while he was being encouraged, he pins this letter. A little bit later, he pins the letter to the church at Philippi. So this is how he knew what was going on. Paul was a witness, according to chapter 4, verse 12. I bear witness that Epaphras is praying that you would be fully assured in all the will of God. And before we even get to the letter, we're going to eventually get into the prayer. But before we get there, dream a little bit on the joy of hearing the words in this global context. The gospel has come to you. The gospel has come to you. It's bearing fruit. It's growing all around the world and among you. This right here is a biblically succinct way to capture our desire in seeing God be praised and Jesus worshipped all around the globe. Our hope is that one day those that we cross cultures with this precious good news to share with would be able to say something along those lines. Man, praise the Lord. The gospel has come to us. It is bearing fruit and it's growing among us as it did among you. Our life, our life must be marked with substance and this substance must be Christ. The church must have substance to her and this Substance must be Jesus. And this substance should be thickened. Or maybe leavened's a better word for that. Should be thickened or leavened in a Colossians 1 sort of way. So what does a worthy walk, walk with Christ look like? How can I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this regard? And before we look a bit more closely at verses 9 through 14, 
let us briefly consider this beginning phrase, since the day we heard of you, or since the day we've heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. So before he prays, he opens up with that powerfully packed, loaded statement. So from the day we've heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. And so um, verse 9 doesn't actually have the word faith in there, but that is what it is that he heard from the day we heard. Heard what? When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints back in verse 4. So he had heard of their faith, heard of their love for the fellow, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's important for us to know that what we hear will necessarily affect and inform how we ought to pray for one another. What we hear about each other will inform how we intercede for one another. How else did Paul know how to precisely and specifically pray for them? He heard. Epaphras told him. So what's the practical application lying underneath that? Well, let me be, let me be helpfully clear. We must avail ourselves to one another. Before we avail ourselves to one another, obviously, we must avail ourselves to God. And one of the clearest indications for a person who really is desiring real help is they allow people into their struggles so that they can be prayed for. The Spirit is going to make it clear how far-reaching this audience should be in receiving this request, but I implore you to care for your own spiritual well-being in such a way and your own spiritual progress in such a way that you will allow another trusted, trusted brother or sister in Christ in on your soul. We don't know how to pray for one another in specific ways if we're not willing to humble ourselves and avail ourselves so that we can receive that sort of prayer and we can receive that sort of gospel care. In fact, you could possibly argue that as much as you would state that you need help, if you do not express how clear that help is, it calls into question whether or not you really do want to be helped. So avail yourself to God. Avail yourself to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ and get the sort of care that Paul's instructing and Paul is demonstrating. Intercessory prayer for one another moves us toward genuine love for each other. It's impossible. It's impossible to pray for someone that you do not love. It's impossible, uh, or you might, maybe just offer up a token prayer, but rest assured that it's not an acceptable prayer to God. One of two things are going to happen. Either we will hold on to our pride and then double down on all our reasons for not praying for them, or we will humble ourselves and let the Spirit apply the sweet balm of Christ's reconciliatory work on our behalf. The work of Christ, whereby he has, according to Colossians chapter 1, reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So as it relates to unceasing prayer, how do we know that we aren't praying like the Gentiles 
their many words of repetition, or hypocrites who focused on their public praying, both of which were condemned, is what we are asking. Is it in keeping with today's sermon text, or perhaps more broadly, is what I'm asking in keeping with the prayers and praying that we witness in the Bible? Is this request something which has been granted to us by virtue of Christ's shed blood? Is this request glorifying to God? Is this the petition, the sort of request that increases my love for Jesus and births Christ-honoring fruit? Then yes. The answer to these is yes, then yes. This is the sort of praying that God would bless and therefore would not condemn. He would welcome this sort of intercession. As Psalm 8411c says, No good thing did he withhold from his child for those who walk uprightly. God doesn't withhold good from his people. So as we consider the prayer today, the outline today, that's meant to give us a guide for answers to questions that we might ask in praying. What do I ask? How do I encourage? What should be my response? So first, what do I ask? Verse 9. And maybe it's helpful that I'm grabbing these three points here from the word asking in verse 9. The phrase, may you be strengthened, in verse 11. And then the phrase, giving thanks to the Father, in verse 12. What do we ask? We ask that one another be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Most importantly, we must know God. We must know God. There's no substitute, nor is, the, is there any other alternative than knowing God. So first and foremost, that's what we ought to be praying for one another, that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We must know that as God reveals himself through his word, that he is also revealing his will finding God's will. That's a phrase. Lots of books have been written on that. Uh, lots of people talk, just pray that I would find God's will. Okay, that's not inerrantly uh, wrong, but it's a misunderstanding of God's revealed will. Finding God's will has less to do with a path or an answer to a prayer and more to do with our communion with God. For it is in this communion with God whereby he reveals what obedience to him is going to look like. That's the revealed will of God, what God has revealed through his word, his spirit bearing witness and bearing testimony with our spirit. Notice the language in Psalm 43. Teach me to do your will, O Lord. David prayed in Psalm 25, make me to know your way. Lead me into your path. Or maybe the more familiar Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to test and prove God's will, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. Not conformed to the patterns of this world, but through the renewing of our mind, through God's word, that we'll be able to test, 
discern, prove this is the will of God. Jesus said, this is my, this is my food to do the will of him who sent me. That's John 4, 34. But before pressing forward in uh, the instruction, the demonstration, how we ought to be praying, that we be filled with the knowledge of God's revealed will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, there are helpful verses that do give guidance for those who really are struggling to understand what does God want me to do in this situation. Isaiah 30, 21 is helpful. Whether your ear turned to the right or the left, there will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Or one of my favorites, Psalm 32, 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Or the James chapter 1, verses 5 and following. Any of you lack wisdom? You should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. For when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not receive or think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. So ask God. Faith God. Believe that God will grant wisdom to you. But realize it's more than just finding something. It's communion. It's fellowship with the God of the Bible. Know him. And that's what Paul's pressing into this young church. You're struggling. You're wrestling with these doctrinal issues. You know God. You know God. Charles Simeon said, the knowledge of God's revealed will is the foundation of all acceptable obedience. And every Christian of necessity must be one of some degree endued with it. But he will not be satisfied with the scanty measure of it. He wishes to be filled with it so that it may engage all the faculties of his mind. Be so enthralled with it that it will engage all the faculties of your mind, the knowledge of God filling every sphere of human life. Simeon went on to say that, and it is certain that in proportion as we have attained a just knowledge of God's will, we shall desire both for ourselves and others, get that? Both for ourselves and others, an increase of righteousness and true holiness. So what we gain for ourselves, what we gain for others in the sense of true righteousness and true holiness will be in proportion, in proportion, that we attain a just knowledge of God's revealed will. A few weeks ago, maybe this was in uh, preparation for today. I'm not real sure. Uh, Monday, and there was a Monday that didn't sort of pan out like I had thought that it might. And there was just a lot of just praying. And, uh, and people will say just, you know, for pastors, Mondays are hardest days. And I'm not, I'm not really typically given to those sort of things. But it was just one of which was an examination. And here was the thing that God was pressing in on, is that I was realizing, really coming to grips, that early on in Christian ministry, the ways that I thought God would be using me as a minister of the gospel are in a lot of ways very different than how he's actually using me. And I think that's a good thing. I really think it's a good thing because it exposes 
really what I thought and how I perceived how God intended to use me. It exposed a lot of my prayers during my collegiate days. I mean, I can remember um, almost on a daily basis, I kept a very uh, thorough prayer journal. And I was regularly praying uh, for God's will on a, a variety of matters. I desired to be married. I desired to know uh, what it was that I was going to be doing for life, how it is that God would be using me in all of these ways. And I, I can remember uh, quite vividly uh, several long walks where I just take walks around the campus and I'm just praying and talking with the Lord about these things. But it, what it is, it exposed what I was talking about earlier that for me, my limitation, my understanding of what it meant to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding more had to do with the path in life or more had to do more with how I thought and perceived that God would use me and had less to do with regular communion with him. I met with God in his word, but I recall the meeting in God with, or meeting with God in his word it shaped how I looked at God in his word. I was looking to God for answers. Had all these things that I was praying, and I was looking to God for God to reveal my answers to these things in Bible study in that way. And so I just want to caution us. Yes, we would encourage anybody who's praying about what God might want to do with them in their life that you ought to seek counsel. You ought to seek counsel from God's word. But be careful that you don't go to God's word in hopes or just as a means of God change, or I'm not just changing it, but God show me the answer to these questions that I have. Go to meet with God simply at a desire to worship God. That is what I believe Paul is getting underneath this prayer request to this young church, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Trusting. I couldn't have planned what I'm doing now any better than it's unfolded. Secondly, he said to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I won't labor here too long. Uh, some of you are looking at this in First Thessalonians 1 and 2. Uh, I preached a few weeks ago. Second Thessalonians, this prayer to this young church at Thessalonica, to this end. Also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So his prayer for them is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Who are we called to? We're called to Christ. What are we called to do? Faith him, love him, be obedient in all things. What does this look like? What it looks like is just a heart that's bent toward him, a disposition a willingness for your life to be spent in a manner that's going to be most pleasing and honoring to him because this will be ultimately will be what's best for you. 
We don't go to God and say to God, this is what I believe walking in a manner worthy of you is going to look like. This is what I believe fully pleasing to you is going to look like. We go to him in humility. We spend time with him and we trust that he's going to reveal what that looks like. And we're going to trust the things that he is teaching us and instructing us from his word. And we're going to endeavor our lives that they would be lived in such a manner that's fully pleasing to him. We have zero negotiation rights with God. There's not a single one of us that can go to him and barter with him in any way. None of us can say, we'll give you these things so long as we can hold on to these things. Jesus not only would say, but said, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit to be my disciple. Any of us guilty of that? Any of us right now have one hand on the plow, one hand in the world? Any of us have one foot in the church and one foot in the world? Are any of us here divided in a way? then I would encourage you to spend a lot of time in this passage. Ask God to do this in you, to expose these things in you. No Christian, no genuine Christian has ever been dissatisfied when their life is being lived in a way that's fully pleasing to the Lord. What that looks like, that means you're bearing fruit in every good work. So you see how this just continues to snowball in a good way. Bearing fruit in every good work. When our life is consumed with the knowledge of God's revealed will, it will necessarily affect every work that we have, everything that we do. Bearing fruit in every good work. He did not write this just to Epaphras. He wrote this to a church to a working church, to a laboring church, to tent makers, to moms and dads that worked in the home, out of the home. God has simply placed you in your occupation, not primarily for your needs to be met, but primarily so that his gospel can go forth. So how does... Bearing fruit in every good work look good in your current occupation? It means you endeavor to live fully pleasing to him wherever it is that God has you. You work at that with all of your might as serving for the Lord and not men, as he goes on to say later on in Colossians 3. You drink and you eat to the glory of God. That's a little bit of what bearing fruit in every good work looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. He had already prayed that you'd be filled with the fullness of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But then saying, increasing in the knowledge of God. So we see again the fruit of this prayer. Verse 9, from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's how we increase in the knowledge of God. You see the cycle effect? Increasing in the knowledge of His will means that we Grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. It means we're 
bearing fruit in every good work. It means that we're being fully pleasing to Him in all things, which must mean that we're growing in our knowledge of God, that we're growing in our knowledge of what the Christian life looks like. Does that make sense? It kind of does in my head, but I'm not sure that I communicated it well enough that it makes sense. That we pray. And as we pray, and God through His Spirit works these things in our heart, then that means we're growing. We're increasing in our knowledge of Him, which is going to do what? Drive us to more prayer. That's what I'm trying to say. Lord, Help my insufficient preaching to be of help and encouragement to you. What does the Christian look like? life look like? It looks like verses 9 through 14. How ought we ought to pray for one another? Verses 9 through 14. What does gospel care for one another comprise of? Verses 9 through 14. It's remarkable what is ours in the triune Godhead. God wrote the instructions. Christ is our example. And the Holy Spirit enables us to live upon these truths. So that's our request. That's what we're asking from God. Now, how do we encourage? This is the gospel encouragement that Paul is instructing and demonstrating here. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Isn't that just gentle love that he's given? I'm asking these things for you. Now, this is how I'm putting real encouragement in you. How do we really encourage one another who's struggling, limping along in the Christian life? Is it encouragement to them to just say, man, maybe tomorrow will be a little bit better than today? Or, as we so often hear, time will heal. Eventually you'll forget, it'll be over. That's never helped anybody. But what does help, what does put real encouragement, what does help you possibly roll out of that bed and say one more day, one more day, is knowing that the Holy Spirit is putting on the hearts of other brothers and sisters in Christ this encouragement to you. May you be strengthened. May you be strengthened with all his power. May you be strengthened with all his glorious might. I mean, is there any question what's more desirable? What's our preference in power and might? Is it ours? We're the ones that get ourselves in this mess. And we just suddenly think that we can get ourselves out of this mess. That's not what the psalmist said in Psalm 40, 41 or 42. He didn't get himself out of the miry pit. God got him out of the fiery pit and placed his feet on the rock. Christ, the chief cornerstone. So the way that we encourage one another, the way that we not try to just slap a bunch of churchy talk on on each other, but the way that we come side by side, the way that we sit down at the table, the way that we look at each other face to face, may you be strengthened. I'm praying that you would be strengthened with all his power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's his energy that he is powerfully working within us. He says that in verse 29. 
for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We live the Christian life the very same way that we received Christ. At least that's what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we receive him? Through repentance and faith. How do we walk in him? Through repentance and faith. That's how we receive him. That's how we live in him. That's how we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. There's no pride. There's no room for pride. No room for pride in the kingdom of God. For all endurance and patience with joy, most of us, I'm sure every one of us has probably heard this statement before, don't pray for patience because God might give it to you. You heard that before? Don't pray for patience because God might give it to you. And it's like telling somebody whose arm's falling off, don't go see the doctor. That's not going to help you very much. That's not the way that Paul's instructing. That's not what Paul is demonstrating here. It's not in keeping with this request. The Christian life is one in which we are held by God, our Father, moment by moment. It is a moment by moment fight for endurance and patience. Listen. With joy. With joy. With joy. Guilt has been removed so that we can walk and live in joy. Joy is not in the absence of suffering, joy is in the presence of God. It's a precise and perhaps additional way. For Paul to say, I'm praying for you to have joy in the enoughness of Christ. I'm praying that your joy in Christ is enabled by God's enduring power through you. And I'm praying that you are undergirded with Christ's trustworthy, abiding presence in patience. Simeon, oh believer, aim not at low things, but aspire after the highest measures of wisdom purity, and joy. The reason God has ordained intercessory praying is that it causes us to be less inclined to steal God's glory when he answers. Praying with faith must come from a heart that is truly humble before God. It bursts forth from the depths of our need. Praying, for, praying in faith bursts forth from the depths of of our understood, realized, experienced need for all endurance and patience with joy. May God strengthen us with his power according to his glorious might. Lastly, how should I respond? Give thanks to the Father. Isn't that fantastic? Give thanks to him. In all things, give thanks to him. In all things, give thanks to him. Thank him for his sanctification. Thank him for the trials. It's remarkable any time to sit across from someone who's countering deep suffering for them to be able to say, I just thank God for what he's doing. I thank God for his faithfulness. 
in life. God is full of love for his people. And if we're not convinced by that already, then be convinced with it in verses 13 through 14. Giving thanks to God our Father. If you being evil know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much greater will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Thank Him. He loves us with the love of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, His Son, our elder brother, co-heir, Jesus Christ, who qualifies us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. We don't qualify ourselves. We don't earn it. We can't work our way into a right standing with him. We can't hope that our goods will outweigh our bads. We have to be qualified. We have to be transferred. We have to be delivered. We have to be loved. We have to be atoned for. We have to be forgiven. We have to be adopted. We have to be chosen. We have to be foreknown. We have to be brought in. We have to be sealed. We have to die. We have to be raised again. And not a single one of those things that I just mentioned are any of us in this room capable of doing. Where lies the hope? Give thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in this inheritance. Does that mean I get to come to his table? Does this inheritance mean I get one little cup? Did I get one little stale cracker? No, we get it all. We get it all. All of that is stored up for us in Christ. The Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, has sealed it for the day of redemption. Has sealed it. It's kept in heaven by God. It's protected. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. Reserved for us. Protected by God. Five different ways in 1 Peter 1 that we are reminded that our inheritance is secure and given to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To be given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, protected by God, ready for a salvation that will be revealed in the last day. This is ours in Christ. Again, we can't work our way into this. We can't earn this. God in his love qualifies us to share co-heirs with Jesus in this inheritance. That's too good to be true. It would be too good to tr be true if it weren't for verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of our sins. These things can't be given to us unless we're delivered and unless we're transferred. But it's not enough to be delivered. We must be transferred. Psalm 79, so appropriate that Pastor Jordan read earlier. Where God has delivered us, both delivered us and forgiven us for his name's sake. He is the one who's qualified us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. He's the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There must be deliverance and there must be a transfer. And this deliverance and this transfer from one kingdom, the kingdom of this world and darkness of Satan, into the kingdom of the loved, the eternally loved son. This kingdom is filled with eternally loved sons and daughters. And this is all through, by virtue of the, of, of the very redemptive work of Christ on our behalf. Only in Christ can we be redeemed. Only in Christ can we have the forgiveness of sins. So as we wrap this up this morning, let this again encourage our hearts in Christ. Let us see that this is the type of praying that we ought to have for one another. That this is what a picture of what gospel care would look like. And let us understand that these things are bookended. They are bookended with the precious work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We're his. We're the father's. Based on the love that he's bestowed upon us in Christ. Delivered. Redeemed. Forgiven. With that biblical foundation and that biblical understanding, let me close with this. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you, may us, may we, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to God the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In him. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that your spirit would take your word and seal it into our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.